Hello, this is China Podcast. China <laughs> Business Cast, get it right. <laughs> <laughs> This is China Business Cast, your guide to doing business in the wild, wild east. We're here to get detailed and get personal with experienced entrepreneurs making things happen in China. If you want to learn from on-the-ground accounts of how business actually gets done, this is the program for you. Hello and welcome to China Business Cast. I'm your host JP, and today I'm joined by my co-host Chloe from Hong Kong. How are you doing, Chloe? Very good. How are you? Great. Excellent. So, your guest for the episode today,、um, Peter Keller. He sounds like a very interesting guy. How did you meet him?、Uh, we met through actually last time he was in Shenzhen on a quick sourcing trip. We met and went to a foot massage together, the regular kind, mind you. Yeah, I'm sure.、Uh, <laughs> and but the reason I know Peter is、uh, we connected online through this private online membership community for entrepreneurs called the Dynamite Circle. Ooh, sounds exclusive. Tell me more about it.、Uh, yeah, so it's run by these two guys who also run a podcast called the Lifestyle Business Podcast, and they're two physical product guys, and they do e-commerce selling to North America, manufacturing in China, and they put together this private membership for entrepreneurs to connect. Interesting.、Uh, how often do you guys meet? So most of the action happens online. So there are physical meetups as well. Usually twice a year, once in Bangkok in the fall, and in the spring, once in Berlin. Oh, cool!、Um, can anyone become a member, or do you have to pass some special tests like the Mensa? You just have to be a cool entrepreneur. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> and with cash and pay the membership fee. Yeah, so it is a paid membership. Okay, interesting. Now let's、uh, come back to Peter. So tell me more about Peter.、Um, what is he? What is he like? And what is the, this business he's running now? So yeah, Peter runs a. He's the founder of a CrossFit gear business, so CrossFit gear and equipment, and he's really into CrossFit himself. So he's super fit. So even when he was on his sourcing trip, he was still like waking up at six in the morning to do his runs and working out. So yeah, he's a pretty intense guy, but a cool guy. Wow, people like that always inspire me because I always have trouble waking up in the morning. And CrossFit is fast becoming a huge trend in Hong Kong as well. I think we already got like two, three gyms,、um, specialized CrossFit gyms, opened up, and there's、um, new ones coming. Is there any、uh, good CrossFit gyms in Shenzhen or other parts of China? You know, I haven't looked into it because I'm not that hardcore. I just go to do my normal gym workouts. <laughs> that is definitely an industry we should look out for. Yeah, I'm sure it'll pick up. It'll be a trend for sure. Excellent. So I really enjoyed Peter's talk today. I mean, he has some great personal stories about、um, the mistakes he made, the lessons he learned from his、um, time in Shanghai. De- sorry, time in China, dealing with all the factories. What are some of the key takeaways? Okay, so he gives some actual stories of you know successful and unsuccessful. Interactions with his partners in China and how to navigate from an unsuccessful situation and make that into a better situation. And also, he gives some a list of tips on how to manage relationships, everything from gifting and to bribing. You'll have to find out what exactly he says about bribing if you listen to the episode. 
I think um, the audience will find this episode particularly useful because he's talking about a lot of the common traps or pitfalls that foreigners typically uh, fall into uh, when they first come to China because of lack of cultural awareness or, you know, just because it's wild, wild east. So, yeah, I think the audience will really like it. Sounds good. Let's jump into the show. Today's guest, Peter Keller, is an entrepreneur with a great deal of experience in China sourcing for small and medium businesses. Peter is the founder of Fringe Sport, a company that specializes in CrossFit equipment and gear. Before founding Fringe Sport, Peter was vice president at Living Direct, a multi-million dollar online retailer of home appliances, where he helped build the overseas sourcing capability within the company. Welcome to the show, Peter. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So here's my goal for today for our audience. We'd love to talk about how to build and manage relationships with Chinese factories and really have you guide us and share your experiences. And how do we do that? We want to have some real life stories of interactions, sort of boots on the ground experiences. So the audience knows what to expect when they actually get there, the good and the bad. And also, we'd love for you to share some guiding principles on how to manage those relationships from initiating the relationship to developing the relationship to maintaining them. How does that sound? Yeah, it sounds fantastic to me, and, and I'd love to share a few of my stories. I've got a, some bruised knuckles and, and bloody knees from doing here and there, but I think I've figured most of it out by this time. Fantastic. Okay, before we dive straight into it, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background. What is your China story? How did you first get started in China? And what do you do in China today? Yeah, great. So briefly, I was working for a company called Living Direct back in 2005. And Living Direct is based in the US and it sells small appliances and specialty appliances online things like ice makers and specialty air conditioners and kegerators and that sort of thing. So in 2005, we were getting squeezed in margins from our suppliers jacking up prices, and we were also getting squeezed on the marketing side in that more people were using pay-per-click advertising. So the CEO of the company at the time decided to start sourcing directly from China. And Coincidentally, I also told him at the same time that I was quitting because I was bored and I wanted to go do something else. So that was kind of a, a strange thing. And what he did is he said, well, I tell you what, why don't you stick it out another six months? And if you're still bored, quit, no harm, no foul, and it's fine. But if you want to stay, we need somebody who'll go to China and help us set up manufacturing over there. Now, at this time, I'd never been to China, but I have traveled all over the world uh, other than China, and I'd also lived abroad, and no one else at the company had done that. And so that's why he thought that I would be a good choice for this. So that was 2005, first time to China, first time to Canton Fair in Shanghai. Now, fast forward to today, I'm no longer with Living Direct. I've founded my own company, Fringe Sport, which, as you mentioned before, designs, manufactures, and e-commerce retails CrossFit equipment. And we do manufacture for fringe sport in China, as well as Malaysia, Pakistan, and actually quite a bit in the U.S. as well. So I've been able to diversify our sources for manufacturing. And that's what I'm doing in China today. Okay, perfect. So what is the reason for manufacturing in all of these different places for fringe sport? That's a great question. 
one of the things that really worried me when I was at Living Direct, and when I left Living Direct, I was the vice president reporting to the CEO and founder of the company and, and you know, fairly highly placed there doing a lot of strategic thinking. One of the big problems that I saw is that Living Direct was sourcing all of its product from China. And China has gotten more turbulent as the years have gone on. And while I still believe that China is a great place to source product, I do think that as if you're a small startup, you know, fine, don't worry about diversifying your, your sourcing right off the bat. But as you start to get a little bit more mature as a company, I do think it behooves you to make sure that you're sourcing from multiple different nationalities so that you're diversifying some of that risk. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is sometimes different countries or different places uh, just make you know, product A or product B or commodity A or commodity B better than somewhere else. So, for example, what I'm getting out of Pakistan is some leather goods, which Pakistan is actually known for leather and, and for soccer balls and for things like that. So it's, uh, it's good to go there for leather goods. Then uh, to source in the U.S., that's actually great because not only am I able to you know, give U.S. jobs and feedback in the U.S. economy and all that good stuff, but additionally, I'm able to sell those products for a little bit more on the front end from a marketing aspect, you know, work the made in USA angle and all that. So that's why we source from multiple different locations. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, for today's discussion, we're going to focus mainly on China. This is the China business cast after all. So let's dive straight into it. Can you start us off with one of your most memorable interactions with a factory? Absolutely. So <laughs> this is a great example of what not to do. And then something that I, you know, a bad situation that I was able to, to pull out of. And I'm not going to say that I'm a genius. I, I did have help from some of my friends to help coach me through this, but it started out as a very bad situation. So what happened was this was maybe 2007, 2000, probably 2007, I think, the winter of 2007. I had ordered a few containers of wine refrigerator. We can call it a wine cooler. It's basically a fridge with a glass door and some nice wine racking inside and some lighting and, and this sort of thing. The containers of wine refrigerator, I had ordered them from a new factory, and we had gone with a very high-end look of a touchscreen control on the front. So we had, we had tested some samples, and the samples tested out fine, no problems. But when the container started to hit, and uh, by the way, we also had these tested at the factory, but our inspectors weren't actually looking for this specific defect that I'm about to relate. But So when the containers hit the U.S., and we did some of our own testing stateside, we realized that the touchscreen controls were way too sensitive in that you didn't even have to touch them in order for them to change. And in some cases, they would just change on their own. And we, of course, made a few jokes around the office about a ghost, you know, wafting in front of them, and that's why <laughs> they were changing. Yeah, but unfortunately, we had several containers. I think it was about three containers of these things. Now, <clears throat> one thing to keep in mind, when you order from China... A lot of times people say, oh, well, what's the return policy? Well, <laughs> in almost every case, the return policy is you bought it, it's your problem. And in this case, that was where we started. So I got on the phone, or Skype rather, and talked with the, the Laoban, the head of the factory. And at first, I was very mad, because, and I was letting my emotions show through. And basically, the message that I delivered to him was you delivered us defective product, now you've got to make it right. 
and you know I don't care. We paid you good money for this. You need to make this product be good because we paid you good money. So he, on his end, he he heard this, and he ended up processing it as kind of a loss of face type of thing. And if you ever deal in China a lot, you know, face is very important. He did acknowledge the problem, which that's something that sometimes factories don't do. But because I had come in such an adversarial manner to try and solve the problem, he basically said, screw you, I don't care about you. And it was because of my attitude. So mm-hmm. I went back and I talked with one of my colleagues that actually helped us to start the overseas sourcing side, who is a, a Hong Konger. And we talked about the situation a little bit. And what he said is, look, you came on too strong. And let's face it, you kind of made a, a, an ass of yourself in this situation. So here's what you need to do. You need to basically extend the olive branch. So what I did is I sent an email saying, sorry, I was very heated. You know, let's talk about this again. And the factory, Lao Ban, to his credit, said, okay, let's talk again. So I Skyped him again. And this time I said, again, apologies, you know, apologizing first and said, look, I, I really appreciate that you acknowledged that there was a problem. Now, how do we solve the problem moving forward? And I was very conciliatory. And instead of saying, you know, you screwed up, you fix your problem, I said, we have a problem. How do we move forward and how do we fix it? What we ended up doing is he ended up providing even air freighting, the circuit boards free of charge. And then we had to rework the product on our side in the US. And he actually provided a credit on future orders against our labor cost of reinstalling those circuit boards. So actually, it was really a great solution. And when I came to China next, because at that time, I was coming to China about two times a year, I actually brought him some gifts and I'm, I'm not a real big gift guy, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later on the show, but I did bring him a few gifts that were fairly meaningful to him. I went out to eat with him alone when I got back to China, and I told him I was, again, sorry for my you know being the way I was initially, but I thanked him very much for stepping up to the plate and helping us to solve this problem. After that, he was actually one of my best friends and and best factories that we got along with. I'm not going to say that he didn't make more mistakes in the future, although he didn't make that same mistake again. But we actually had a much better partnership where there was more of a a give and take. And it just, it really worked out very well long term. But short term, you know, I kind of told him to, you know, go screw himself. And he kind of told me the same thing. And so at that point, I had three containers worth of product that I couldn't sell. But we ended up making it work. That's a fantastic story. Is there another story that you can share with us that maybe uh, counterbalances this? I guess something that just starts off with a great note. Absolutely. So I have a friend in Anhui province. He's, you know, mainland Chinese, you know, by birth and and, and was raised there and, you know, went went to school and everything in China. And I met him in 2005 when I, on my very first trip over to China. He had been working with our company already for a few months, but this was the first time to meet him. And I was a young man in my 20s, and now I'm in my 30s. But I was in my 20s, and, and he was in his late 30s at the time. For some reason, he and I just immediately clicked very well, and we had almost a, you know, a mentoring relationship or an older brother, younger brother type of relationship. 
And he, at the time, was helping us to buy some ice machines from, uh, from Ningbo. So even though he's from Anway, he's helping us buy some ice makers from Ningbo. But over the years, I have our, my friendship with this man has deepened, and he has helped me very much when I was at Living Direct, when I would have a problem with this factory or that factory, even if this guy didn't have anything to do with the factories that were in question, I would call him and explain the situation, and then he would help to explain what he thought would be a good path forward. And so it was really a mentoring relationship, and at this point, uh, a deep friendship, to the point that even though I'm no longer with Living Direct, my prior company, I still keep up with him maybe once a week. And so he's just a, a very good friend of mine, now. And that was great. <clears throat> Excuse me. Part of the reason that I offer this story as a counterpoint to the previous story is that for whatever reason, from the start, I treated this guy as a partner. And even though, again, there's been some stuff screwed up here and there over the years in our business dealings together. But anytime that something was screwed up, I always treated him as a, as a partner, as an equal, and we worked for on a solution together. That approach for me was so successful that I now count this this man as, as one of my best friends, not one of my, you know, quote, good Chinese friends, just one of my good friends. So there's no, you know, none of that in my, my head. So that's my, my counterpoint story. Excellent. And it's so important doing business in China to have that local understanding and that local perspective, right? And it's so great that you've, you were able to develop such personal and deep trusting relationships with people on the ground. Yeah, I think so. And I do have a number of other Chinese friends, but he was just one that over the years has been very influential and, and very helpful in, in just about everything that I've done. Okay, great. Now let's get into it and talk about the steps, the ABCs and one, two, threes of how to build, develop, and maintain relationships with sourcing and uh, factory resources. Now, number one, let's talk about what is the right way to initiate a relationship? Okay, so there, there are a number of things here. Obviously, you, if you're looking for a factory relationship, you're, you probably have an idea of something that you're looking to make, or maybe you even have a design for it or something like that. So essentially, you already have, as the importer to your country, you already have an idea of what you're looking for in a factory. So you're probably looking on Alibaba, you're possibly flying to China and going to the Canton Fair, or maybe you're doing a little espionage work and spying on your competitors and seeing where they're sourcing product. So once you identify the product, the, excuse me, the factory that you're looking, that you believe would be a good fit for you, you obviously reach out to them in the, the first place. Now, if you don't speak Chinese, as I actually uh, don't speak Mandarin uh, or, or Cantonese or anything other than, honestly, the bad words, usually that first contact is going to be over email. Now, the thing that you have to understand is that a, a sales guy for one of these factories, especially if they're on Alibaba, is getting a flurry of emails all the time. And most of those emails are basically from people who are tire kickers. That is to say, they're not really looking to do business. They're more kind of testing the waters or maybe trying to get a price quote so that they can use that as leverage to bargain with another factory or you know, even bargain with one of their suppliers stateside or something like that. So the first thing that you need to do is you need to somehow signal 
that you're serious about your business. Now, the other thing that becomes tricky when you try to signal that you're serious about your business is usually the most important thing to a Chinese factory is volume. They all have minimum order quantities and they all, even though they have a stated queue or minimum order quantity, they really want a customer that's cresting that minimum order quantity by quite a bit. Now, the other thing is a lot of people know that and so a lot of people lie and say, oh, well, I'm going to do 10,000 units. You know, you know, my first order may be 100 units, but second order is going to be 10,000 or something like that. So you want to be professional in your email communication. You want to establish where your market is. So for me, it's, it's the U.S. For someone else, it may be Canada or, or, or something else. So be professional. Establish where your market is. Establish some sort of, and I would call it social proof at this point. You know, you're not just a some guy who's got a crazy idea, but you're actually some guy who has a company that is going to be able to sell whatever you're sourcing from this factory. And then I would, if you have a, a specific SKU, you know, ask for some information on that SKU. You know, possibly reference pricing. Although I usually hold off on on. Uh, any pricing negotiations until you've actually established that they can, the factory can do what you want them to do. So be professional, establish your social proof, make sure that they know kind of what uh, quantities you're looking for and what your market is, and you know shoot that email over. And if you don't immediately get a response, uh, you know two days maybe, I would follow up with another email, very polite but firm, and just saying here's what I'm looking for. So that's over email. One of the things that I like to do fairly early on is get their Skype info because just about everybody who's a serious salesperson at a factory is going to have Skype. And at that point, you can actually start, and I actually usually chat with them, that is to say, I'm typing back and forth or instant messaging with them over Skype versus over the phone. And this way, you can start to establish some sort of rapport with your counterpart uh, overseas. And again, you just want to make sure that they know that you're serious about, about the business. Now, one thing that I really encourage a lot of people to do is if there's any level of seriousness at all about sourcing from China, try to get to Canton Fair and try to meet with your supplier there. That is assuming they are at Canton Fair, which most suppliers in my experience are. Now, I had talked before about you know, proving that you're not a Yahoo that's just you know, firing off emails to 10 factories to get pricing. One of the things that going to Canton Fair shows the factories is at the very least, you can scrape together enough money for a plane ticket and you know, a week off of whatever your business is to, to get there and meet them face to face. So that can be a huge amount of social proof that you're not just some Yahoo. So the other thing is... Uh, there's so much that depends on relationships in China and, and elsewhere in the world. And when you can actually meet someone face-to-face, -face, you can potentially go out to dinner with them. That can help to build a rapport. Now, I want to take a, a quick digression here, if I can, and discuss the standard Western viewpoint of China versus a viewpoint that I would strongly suggest you take. So a lot of people in the West, and you've, you've if you're in the U.S. or Canada, you've probably heard this before. There's this stigma or attitude, oh, you know, China makes cheap crap. Or, you know, China has, you know, horrible human rights records and, and really low wages. And so you just go over there to make, you know, cheap stuff. Mm -hmm. And that carries through to a lot of people that I know who source from China, uh, particularly people that I've met previously that have fairly large companies or are sourcing for a multinational and are controlling 
you know, very large volumes of orders, the types of orders that the factories can't turn away, they often have a fairly dismissive attitude towards the factories and towards the salespeople they talk with. They say, hey, I'm Walmart. I've got, you know, 100,000 units that I'm going to order. You know, F you, go make my order. Just, you know, shut up. Here's the money. Go make the order. And this is an attitude that is really hated by the Chinese factories. And I think it's actually, a, you know, a, a, a poor, a corrosive attitude to have in general. So my viewpoint that I try to take is that the factories can be valuable long-term partners for, you know, myself and my company. Keep in mind that when you're, when you're going over there, or even if you're dealing over email or Skype, you're making interpersonal connections. You know, your company may be doing business with their company, but really it comes down to you and the, the salesperson or the Laoban or whoever you have a relationship with. And these relationships can survive different companies. So, for example, when I left Living Direct, I still took with me most of my, well, all of my contacts, but most of the people that I was very friend, friendly with in China and, and elsewhere you know, still know me as Peter Keller and know the way that I do business, that, that I treat people well as equals, as partners, and that when I say, hey, you're going to get paid on X date, they get paid how much they're supposed to be paid on that date. Conversely, when I was at Living Direct, there was some, you know, <laughs> a bit of movement in salespeople from factory to factory, and whenever a salesperson left and went to the next factory, I would still keep my, you know, friendship or acquaintance up with that salesperson. And that can be beneficial because they can help you get to a new factory, A, and B, you know, they know a lot about what went on at their old factory. So if you, you know, are, are in, you know, Shunda or Guangzhou and you want to grab a beer with them, it's usually uh, money well spent, you know, as, as well as just catching up with a friend. So that's kind of my little digression on, on the standard Western viewpoint versus shifting it to make sure that you're looking, unless you're looking for just a very quick hit of like, hey, make me 100 pieces and then I'm gone, that you should treat these factories as long-term partners. Um, one quick caveat on that, though, is I don't mean let them take advantage of you and just roll over any time that there's a problem. Because that if you treat people as friends always, that can sometimes be perceived as weakness of your position, and some people will try to take advantage of that. So you just need to make sure that you've structured you know, deals so that you're not able to get taken advantage of that. For example, if you're opening LCs, that, uh, that the factory knows that the LC terms are, you know, that's what you need them to produce. Um, so, but you will notice some factories or, or some people that you deal with over there that are you know, more open and, and honest, and, and um, you, know, you can connect with them better than some others and, you know, deepen your relationship with those people. I think that's an excellent introduction. So I'm just going to summarize all the great information into a couple of points. I think one is you stress that having the right attitude, even before you begin, right, the right mindset of how you want to interact is very important. And also establishing that you're a credible and legitimate prospect for them is an important important thing to do when you're interacting with the factory. So with that in mind, and with a good idea of how we can initiate a relationship, let's talk a, a little bit about the nitty gritty and the details and the fun parts of maintaining positive ongoing relationships with these factories. Yeah, absolutely. And, and honestly, sometimes starting up the relationship is the most difficult thing. Once you, you kind of have a little 
you know, common rapport built with your whoever's the, the rep that you're talking with or the Laoban at a factory, then, you know, maintaining and, and deepening the relationship is actually usually an easier part because you don't have to prove that you're legitimate anymore. They already know at least a little bit of your character. And so you just have to just continue to reinforce that over your your relationship and over time as you deal with those factories. So a couple of things that I would say is I would say the basic principle is respect them, but politely demand respect in return. And this is what I had talked about a little bit before, that just because I'm saying to treat them as partners doesn't mean that you're a pushover. So to give you an example in practice, with my very first container that I ordered for Fringe Sport, it had a number of different items on it. It had some kettlebells, which are a type of weight that's kind of like a cannonball with a, a handle sprouting out of the top. And then it had some barbells, which I think most people probably know what barbells are. Now, the factory produced both the kettlebells and the barbells incorrectly. And we knew this before the container was shipped because we always have our containers inspected by a third-party inspection company, which, by the way, costs about 275 to 300 U.S. dollars for a day's inspection. I, I think almost, you know, to, <laughs> almost anything, if you're ordering a container load, you can probably layer another $300 in cost on there, and it's money well spent. So just as a side note there. So our third-party inspector inspected the goods, and it came back that both the kettlebells, the kettlebells had been made to the wrong specifications, and the barbells had been made to the wrong specifications. So I Skyped the factory Laoban and you know, let them know that we knew about this, and we discussed what the cause of this problem was because I believe that he was trying to save face by putting the responsibility for producing the incorrect item on me. And then I conversely knew what I had ordered and was saying, well, or excuse me, in my head, I was thinking, well, it's not my fault. But in my mouth and what I was saying was, let's find a solution. Because for me to say you screwed up or for him to say I screwed up, that's just, uh, it's nothing. It's just fighting back and forth. And at the end of the day, I want product shipped that I can sell. So what I did is I took a closer look and had the factory boss send one of his guys out to take more pictures of both of these products. And it turned out that the kettlebells, although they'd been produced to different specifications than I had sent over, they were still quality kettlebells that I knew I could sell in my market. On the other hand, the barbells were not produced to specs that I could sell in my market. And so after we had taken those pictures, I got back on Skype with him and I said, look, you know, I don't want to talk about who screwed up or whatever. This is just, let's chalk it up to a communication problem. However, while I can accept the kettlebells, I cannot accept the barbells as is. So what options do we have to make this right? Can you reproduce the barbells? Can you rework the existing barbells? What are we going to do? And as it turned out, to rework the existing barbells was a $300 fee. And he offered to split it with me. So I ended up paying 150 and he ate 150 And we had the barbells reworked and the container sailed. It was a little bit late, but I still got it in and the goods were, were acceptable. Now, did it really cost him $300 to do the rework? I don't know. But at the end of the day, you know, it was 150 bucks, and I got the product that I needed. So that was uh, the situation there. So... Another thing that I would say is always keep your temper. And I had mentioned in that first first interaction that I had lost my temper 
I'm trying to think if I've ever seen a case where losing, you know, my temper or one of my colleagues or something like that over an order, if it ever led to anything good. And off the top of my head, I, I can't, other than maybe being in a taxi cab and yelling at the driver when he's trying to rip you off, I can't think of any case where losing my temper actually led to something good, either short-term or long-term. A few other things to talk about. Problems happen when you're dealing with the Chinese factories. It's often very difficult to A, have them admit fault for having a problem, and then B, have them either take back goods or make good on a problem with the products in a, in a vacuum. However, if you leverage your future business together, you can creatively solve the problems in, in the present. As I mentioned with that earlier story, the Lauban of the factory with the wine coolers, the Lauban of the factory was not willing to give me a cash outlay to offset my labor costs. However, he was willing to give me a credit on future orders to offset my labor costs. And I imagine from his perspective, he was actually thinking, well, you know, these guys may not have ordered from me before because I screwed up their first order. But if I give them a credit, they'll certainly order from me in the future because they want to, you know, use that credit up. So it was kind of a win-win because honestly, since he fixed the problem, we were able to order from him again and everything went well. Another thing to talk about is when you find good partners, as I mentioned with my friend from Anway, try to deepen the relationship and deepen the partnership. Because even though my friend from Anway was only, strictly speaking, doing business with us and getting paid on a few deals that directly involved him, he actually helped me very much in other deals just by helping me to understand either the mindset of the factory or in a few cases he would kind of go and do a little sniffing around and maybe find out something about costing for the factory. For example, if I was having price increases and I thought they were unreasonable, he might be able to use his connections and find out, you know, is that a reasonable price increase or not? And then at least I have that information when I'm negotiating with the factory. Another thing that's huge in dealing with China, and this one I stole a little bit from Ramit Sethi, who has a, a really great website and business. He talks, Ramit talks a lot about the game around you. So in China, especially if you're a Westerner, I guarantee you there's tons of stuff going on around you, even in that same room when you're in a negotiation, and you have no idea what, what game is going on that's kind of over your head or be, behind your back. So as you start doing more business in China, try to look for the things that you don't understand and try to understand, try to get a partner that can help explain the, the Chinese way of thinking and this complex mix of, of of, you know, Quan Shi, which is kind of like networking and, you know, I don't know, class and race and, and culture that you as a Westerner are probably not ever going to understand, but you can at least get some sort of idea of it. And if you get some sort of idea of it, it can help you to predict what's going to happen in the future when you get into similar situations. Interesting. So I, I definitely see this as, you know, a, a scenario that that would happen. Do you have a specific example of, you know, one of the games that usually goes on when they think <laughs> you, maybe you don't speak Chinese and you don't have anyone on your side that speaks Chinese and they just sort of like discuss among themselves? Yeah, absolutely. So here's here's an example. I'd mentioned previously that I'd worked with a contractor who was, who was a Hong Konger. So he spoke Cantonese because he was born in, in Hong Kong. English growing up in Hong Kong, plus he, he did some schooling in the U.S. And, and the U.K. And he spoke Mandarin as well because he had a Taiwanese wife. 
also because he had a Taiwanese, uh, sorry, his wife's parents lived in Shanghai now. And so he actually spoke a little, uh, I believe it's called Shanghaiese. Oh, it's uh, very different. Yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. local dialect. Yeah. Right. So he spoke a little bit of that local dialect. And so one time we were doing business with a factory that is located outside of Shanghai. I was with him. And in our, when we were in negotiations, they were talking in Shanghaiese because they didn't believe, of course, I'm, you know, uh, ignorant, you know, Lao Wai. So, of course, I'm not going to speak, you know, Chinese, let alone, you know, Shanghaiese. And they knew from my friend's accent that he was, you know, from Hong Kong and, and not even speaking Mandarin natively. So, of course, again, not going to speak Shanghaiese. So, they were actually talking about deal points, including, you know, how much, how much lower they could go on the pricing, things like that. And of course, my friend, you know, pretended that he didn't understand any of it. And then we were able to actually use that, uh, you know, just information. So when they said, okay, this is our final price, and they mentioned a price, we know that actually the price is lower than that. Now, that's a, a very, let's say, facile example of the game going on around you that you may not understand. Uh, more <laughs> complex situation that I've been in before is when there was a basically one of our sales reps at a factory. And I, I want to be a little bit obscure this a little bit, but one of the sales reps for a factory was actually obstructing our orders purposefully because he was trying to extract a bribe from us. And uh -huh. actually as the the bribe uh, and when he finally solicited the bribe, it was um, so laughably low that uh, we didn't pay it. But it was like, seriously, you're holding up our orders for you know this amount of money. It, it was really you know just shockingly low. But the thing was that we he had been coming up with all of these excuses for why our orders couldn't ship. We had tried to go around him to talk with his supervisor, and he was also kind of fencing us off from that as well, because we were thinking, well, we'll go over his head to his boss, and then we'll see if the boss can get any movement on the container. He very cleverly obstructed us from talking with his boss, and the reason that he did so is because the problem with the container moving was, be was that he was the problem, because he was setting the, the groundwork to extract a little bit of bribe from us. So had we gone to his boss, you know, we would have blown up his game and, and who knows what would have happened. You know, maybe he would have gotten in trouble. Maybe the boss would have wanted to be cut in. You know, I don't know the situation. But that's what happened. As a side note, when we did find out that this was a bribery type situation, we actually uh, did go to the boss anyways. And we didn't do it in a way to have the salesperson lose face. But we were able to use it as an excuse to transfer to a different salesperson. And actually, our orders went much more smoothly from then forward. So that, that's an example of where there were all these strange delays going on that we couldn't understand. And then as it turned out, well, there was actually a, a good explanation for all of this. We just were ignorant to it at the time. So one of the things that I often look for now is when weird, when, when, when I see things that I think of as weird happening that I don't understand, I immediately try to slow down and say, what's going on that I'm not seeing? What game is being played around me that I'm ignorant to right now? And as I, you know, to go back to my friend from Anway, I actually often query him in situations like this because, as I mentioned, I, I am an ignorant Laowai and I don't have this deep cultural understanding. But sometimes he can help suss out what's going on in a specific situation. 
That's a very interesting and、uh, really good example. Can you give us another couple of main tips on how to maintain positive ongoing relationships? I, I've got, let me, let's do three. Okay. So, number one, this is a quick hitter pay in full and on time. If you make, if you say that you're going to pay X amount of dollars on Y date, you know, move heaven and earth to make sure that you do that. Because that's something that's really serious, especially to, to Chinese factories. And so that's something that I've made sure that I did in my previous job at Living Direct, just made sure that our you know, financial department was making those payments correctly and when they needed to be. And now at Fringe Sport, I make sure that we're always paying on time and paying in full. And, and it means a lot, actually. It doesn't sound like much, but it does mean a lot. So that's one thing I would mention. Another thing that I would mention is. Uh, as I said before, I'm not a huge gift giver, but small and thoughtful gifts are remembered. And a couple of examples that I can mention here that, that are good examples is number one, if your good relations over in China have small children, or maybe they, they just have a baby or, or their wife or something has a baby, there's a lot of uncertainty over,、uh, well, largely food in China, the, the safety of food, that is to say. There's also uncertainty over the safety of toys and things, even like cute baby clothes, are not in broad supply in China like they are in the West. And so, when I know that some of my good friends have, have young children, I will go and find you know, toys or clothes or food or something like that, food like formula that is made either in the US or Western Europe because that's something that they, they look for. And I will bring it over and I will gift it to them.、Uh, again, that's a very small thing. It's not like I'm giving them a bribe or something, but it's something that they really appreciate because it's difficult to get in China and they, they appreciate that I've actually thought of them and then you know, carried it over and, and mulled the formula into China for them. And then the, the final thing that I would say is do your business legally and above board. This is huge. I know this is a little bit less prevalent now than it was in, say, 2005. But everybody wants to say, oh, I know a guy in China. He can help you save maybe some duty cost on this, or he can help you get in there, or he can do this, or he can do that. As time goes on, the Chinese government you know, gets more and more strict about these things, especially if you're a foreigner. I thankfully have not had any problems here, but I do have a friend who's actually a, a Hong Konger who legally cannot enter China anymore because if he enters China, he'll be arrested. And it's all over some, I would say it's probably a misunderstanding. In the West, we would call it a civil matter. In China, they're considering it a criminal matter. But I, I would say it's extremely important to do things legally and, and above board because otherwise you just get in debt to whoever's helping you out. And the debt may not be a financial debt, it may be a, a guanxi debt, just, just a, a mutual favor that you'd have to do for the other party. But it's, it's not worth it. So I would be above board with that. Mm-hmm. And just relating this back to that instance where the sales rep was soliciting a bribe from you guys, I guess that's, not, that's probably not uncommon in China, right? And it's interesting that you chose to work against it rather than just,、uh, you know, it's, it's a low sum, let's just go with it. That's a very interesting strategy. And have you found that that's the best strategy to really find the, the most legitimate way to do things? So, 
let me say something fairly controversial here. <laughs> so it'll be, be good for, for your podcast. Uh-huh. I would say that if you want to bribe people in China or accept bribes in China, you need a lot of experience and you really need to know what you're doing. To just go and start doling out bribes or even accepting bribes on the flip side because uh, in a side here, when I worked for Living Direct, I made a very good salary. But I could have made more money than my salary by accepting bribes if I had wanted to. And most of the time when I was offered bribes previously, it, it was in a very roundabout way. It's part of that game going on around you that you don't understand. Once people understood that I understood that level of the game, I immediately knew that I could make a lot of money if I had wanted to in that way. <laughs> um, so the problem when you start going down that road, and, it, and I've seen it in, in some of my, my friends' companies and my friends' dealings, is you, A, immediately get a reputation that you will bribe or you can be bribed. And as I mentioned to you before, that your reputation travels with you, you know, I would not want to be one to live down that sort of reputation as I move on from company to company, just because in a couple of different instances, or maybe many instances, I put a little money there to, to grease the wheels, because it's really not a good reputation. Mm-hmm. So, so that's number one. The other thing is, you know, when does the cycle stop once you start doling out bribes, or on the flip side, accepting bribes? So for example, my... The, the bribes that were offered to me were not even to accept like high prices or something like that. It was just put a lot of volume to factory X and factory X would, would bribe me in a completely untraceable way. Now, the tricky thing was in, in at least one case, I was already planning to put a lot of volume to factory X. I was shifting off another factory and going to put a lot of volume with this factory. So to be honest, I could have accepted that bribe and still just carried through with my normal plan and no one would be the wiser because it was my normal plan anyways. However, look down the road a little bit and you know I, I just can see that it would get so muddled and you know your decision making, I'm sure, would become so compromised because you would say, well, I've got factory X, got factory Y, got factory Z. At what point, you know, you say, well, it doesn't matter. It's, there's not a little voice in the back of my head that says, if I give it to factory X, there's going to be this money coming to me. I mean, I don't, I don't think you could really ignore that. And it may even be subconscious. You may say, well, that's just a bonus. I'm not really, you know, that's not the reason. But so from, from the accepting bribe standpoint, I have to imagine that it compromises your, your judgment in ways that you, know, you may not even realize. Then from a giving bribe standpoint, again, when does it stop? Once that factory owner or factory salesperson knows that you'll bribe him for, for doing this, you know, maybe you'll also bribe him for doing that and the other thing and the other thing. And maybe he'll tell his friends. And then his friends will start making uh, you know, strange problems with your order that can only be taken care of with bribes. So, you know, to go back to my original point, I, I think that if, you, if you're contemplating doing any bribing in China, which does come up, I wouldn't say as regularly as maybe, you know, someone who, who's outside the situation would expect, but it is, it is something that comes up. But you better really know what you're doing. And, and it's definitely not something that any new person to the sourcing game or to China should do at all. Very solid advice right there. And with that, with that we're going to wrap up this interview. Before we say goodbye, can you tell us a little bit more about what you're currently working on and what you're excited about? Oh, absolutely. 
So I'm so excited about Fringe Sport. I, I founded this company about three years ago. We're doing really well. We're based out of Austin, Texas, selling CrossFit equipment to the U.S. market largely, although we do a little bit of international business. And I, I'm, I'm totally loving it because I'm really into CrossFit, so it's something I'm very passionate about, and I'm able to work in my passion. So that's cool. The other thing is we're bringing a Zappos level of customer service to the fitness industry and, of course, specifically the CrossFit industry. But it's just very rewarding to me to be helping a lot of people get healthy and you know, live happier lifestyles. So that's what I'm, I'm excited about Fringe Sport. Fantastic. Okay, finally, uh, I'll let you leave the audience with one final takeaway message and also let them know one way how they can connect with you. Yeah, absolutely. The one thing I'd, I'd leave you with is just respect. You know, respect other people and demand respect in return. And uh, I saw a, a great quote one time, and it said, have an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out. And, <laughs> and that's kind of a, a pithy little comment, but it's something that I think about a lot. So be open to a lot of, a lot of different uh, experiences and different cultures, different things like that. But don't you know, lose kind of your, your, your bright line of, of your own ethics and, and morality and things like that. And then if anybody wants to, to hit me up um, on Twitter, and that's at Pete Keller. So my first name, Pete with no R, and then Keller, my last name. Or my email address is Peter at FringeSport.com. I love hearing from people and love helping people out. So anybody, feel free to chat with me. Fantastic. And we'll link up to that in the show notes as well. All right. Thank you very much, Peter. JP, it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of China Business Cast. For more about the program and to join the conversation online, check out ChinaBusinessCast.com. Thank you for listening.